Good morning, church. I have to confess, uh, I'm a little nervous preaching this text this morning just because I want to treat the the Word of God uh, delicately because this is not a light and easy text. This is a psalm of of heartache and despair. Um, And so I'm not going to to try to sugarcoat the, the heartache and the suffering that the, the psalmist records. Um, but in preparation for this, it reminded me that it's often said that there are only two things in life that are inevitable, and that's taxes and death. Taxes just seem to be an unending struggle that on this side of glory, it's just one of the, the things that we have to put up with in life. But death... Death is a different machine altogether. Death was never intended to be part of this life. And because of that, death itself brings grief and despair and most often hopelessness. Death in in itself is, is tragic enough on its own, but when death uh, is unexpected, when death Uh, comes sooner than natural life is supposed to allow, the tragedy of death seems to increase exponentially. And it's those moments that seem to etch themselves in your mind and in your memory and to the point where you can remember the details of where you were on days of great tragedy For me, I remember specifically what happened in 2014 when I found out that my mom passed away. That as I was sitting in my van, literally about to drive to church, and the phone call that I received, it's forever etched into my mind. In June 2015, I remember hearing about the tragedy of the Charleston Nine, the, the shooting at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. And I remember just the, the, the paradox of what I was feeling because we were actually on vacation with, with Amy's parents at a beach house in Hilton Head. And so we're surrounded by beauty and rejoicing. And then I hear the news of this tragedy and heartache in my hometown. I remember specifically where I was when I heard the terrible news of 9-11. I had just gotten on campus at Charleston Southern and I was on my way to class when people were talking about how terrorists had taken control of a plane. And even just, I remember hearing the absurdity of how it sounded, like it sounded like I was living out a, a diehard movie that, that it just didn't sound real. And that memory is forever etched into my mind. Or the tragedy of the Columbine massacre. As I was pulling into the parking lot of Metro North Church to, to grab lunch with my mentor, John Schley. These moments of terrible tragedy find their ways of marking themselves in your mem- or, yeah, marking themselves in your memory because of the, the terrible grief and heartache that they bring. But for me, 
a moment in July 2003 was similar and yet so different. I had a friend named Megan Bowen that went on a date to the movies. She went to a different high school, but we worked together at Journey's Shoe Store in the mall. We would hang out sometimes at Waffle House, and we weren't BFFs, but we kept in touch. And she was on a date with her new boyfriend, Curtis, at the Cinemark 8 out in Ladson. And Curtis's ex-girlfriend, in a jealous rage, got in her car and attempted to run Curtis over. And in the process, my friend Megan died instantly that night in the parking lot of the movie theater. I remember seeing this on the news and remember so vividly the grief mixed with rage because it's bad enough when when someone that you know has died but when you know that there is a specific person to blame for it when you can put a face to that frustration the rage that filled my heart and I wanted vengeance Like I said, Megan and I were not the closest of friends, but because of this person was part of my life, the fact that that was ripped away, I wanted justice. I wanted the wrong to be made right. And I remember just that feeling of rage and the desire for revenge just tearing me apart for weeks. And after a few weeks, I I just came to a point where I realized that my anger and my rage and my frustration would never bring Megan back and that somehow I had to trust, not just in the judicial system of of the, the Charleston area courts, but I had to even trust that the justice of God would somehow make this terrible tragedy right someday. But I will never forget that feeling of hopelessness, the feeling of of grief mixed with rage, and the fact that there was nothing that I could do about it. And unfortunately, that feeling comes far too often in this broken world. And scripture speaks vividly into the brokenness and hopelessness of the human condition. And I would argue that Psalm 137 teaches all believers how to pray in times of hopelessness because those times will come. It's not an if, it's a when. There will be grief and sorrow and despair and at times even rage. But instead of leaving us to wrestle with those emotions in an empty void, God's word shows the believer how to interact with hopelessness. And reading this psalm, Psalm 137, actually becomes a prayer. And the psalmist models three aspects of this prayer for God's people. First in verses 1 through 3, prayers of sorrow. Prayers of sorrow in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 6, prayers for faithfulness. Prayers for faithfulness in verses 4 through 6. 
And lastly, in 7 through 9, Psalm 137 models prayers for justice. That's prayers for justice in in verses 7 through 9. Before I go any further, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning confessing that far too often we have felt hopeless and overwhelmed with grief. And God, I pray that you would meet with us now, that you would pour out your spirit in this place, that you would speak through a broken man like myself to bring your healing, to bring your redemption, and to show God that you are over the hopelessness, that you speak justice and mercy into our hopeless condition. Be with us now. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, Psalm 137, uh, there are specific types of psalms that are labeled imprecatory psalms, and Psalm 137 is one of those psalms. An imprecatory psalm is the official theological term for a psalm uh, that is, is full of lament and grief and that the psalm is praying for God to intervene and bring justice. And so in this lament, the psalmist is bringing prayers of sorrow. If you look at the first few verses, by the, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. This psalm is actually plucked straight out of the history of Israel as they were in exile. Somewhere in between the time of 597 to 587 B.C., this is between the conquest of Jerusalem and the fall of Judah, that Jerusalem itself has fallen and those who were not slain, the survivors were taken into captivity. And when they look back and remember Jerusalem, when they remember Zion, when they remember God's kingdom, they look back and they weep. Their captors mock them. They force them to perform for them. They're taunting them, saying, sing us songs of your people. And in a sense, mocking them, saying, where is your God now? The psalmist is expressing the grief and sorrow, not just of himself, but of the entire Israel community. And this, this is why I love the psalms, because of their brutal honesty It's not sugarcoating. It's not putting on a mask. The psalmist, in the face of his tragedy, is not trying to spin his situation and trying to make it sound better. There's actually a famous term for this online, and it's referred to as the Jesus juke. That in the face of of hardship or struggle, uh, that people are, are... and. Christians can be really bad at this, at taking a bad situation and applying some good old-fashioned Christian guilt and saying, well, you should, you should look at this as a good thing. 
that in the struggle of saying, I've been passed over for a promotion, that someone should say that, well, you should just, uh, this is a reminder for you to be trusting in God's provision. That's the Jesus juke. When you say, I was just in a terrible car accident and our car is destroyed. And the person says, well, that's just a reminder to let go of your earthly treasures. That's the Jesus juke. When God's people have been taken into exile, it would be so easy to lay the Christian guilt and the Jesus juke on them and say, well, now you have an opportunity to share the gospel with your captors. This can be a good thing. And the psalmist does not try to make a horrible situation pretty. And he says, this is miserable and we weep. He's not trying to gloss over the heartache. He's written out a song for God's people to remember for generations. A reminder that our grief can be taken to our God. That we can be honest with our sorrow and our struggle. And so the question is, are you honest with your own emotions? Because emotions are not a bad thing. The Lord in his creation gave you emotions. And so your, your sorrow, your struggle, your grief are not negative things. The Lord knows your situation and he invites you into an honest dialogue. Don't try to spin your situation or even try to Jesus juke yourself. But be honest with your sorrow. When your heart has reached the place of hopelessness, lay it out before the Lord. Be honest with your grief and with yourself. In John chapter 11, Jesus has been called back to Judea because Lazarus, his dear friend, is sick and dying. And Jesus waits two days before heading back, knowing what was going to happen And when he returns, Mary and Martha are bringing him to the tomb. And we see in verse 35, uh, in John 11, 35, that is Jesus is standing before the tomb of his friend, Lazarus. Jesus wept. He knew fully well what he was about to do. He knew that he had the miraculous ability to bring him back, that he had the power over death itself, and that this would be an opportunity to show the glory and majesty of God. And yet in the face of death and sorrow and heartache, God in the flesh wept because death was never meant to be a part of life. And that Jesus himself, in the face of heartache and brokenness, shows that emotions are authentic and honest and a good thing to lay out. And the Lord himself wept over the brokenness of death. And I would challenge you, in your grief, 
Do not rob yourself of the opportunity of honest and authentic worship through grief. Take your sorrow to God and say, this is not right. This brokenness of death is not right. The prayers of sorrow allow you to be honest in times of grief. And then the psalmist actually moves on to his second point by delivering prayers for faithfulness. Because in the midst of their torment and their sorrow, God's people are asking for help. They're asking for help with their faithfulness. Looking in verse 4. How shall we sing Yahweh's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. They've been plucked from their kingdom, from the, the land that the Lord himself gave them. And they're saying, if I forget God's faithfulness in this land, may I forget my talent and my ability. When they are faced in this hopeless situation, that their hearts are actually burning with a fierce loyalty to be faithful. That the Lord had proven his faithfulness to his people time and time again. And yet God's people were in exile because they had not been faithful. And as they are in exile, they admit that they need help. Because faithfulness does not come natural. They say, God, let us be faithful to you. And if we are not May we be cursed. May we forget our talents. May we lose our abilities if we are faithless. It kind of reminds me of those childhood promises where you really want to be honest and authentic in your friendship and, 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 and you're making a vow and a commitment to one another and there's the, the age-old truth of cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. And it sounds, it sounds funny, but at the, the childhood level, this is one of the deepest commitments and promises that you can make. And if you're really serious about a promise that you're making, there's the spit shake. Where you spit into your hand and you shake hands and it's, this, it's conveying this promise that if I break my word, I am willing to face the consequences of breaking my promise. I don't think children understand exactly the depth of what they're communicating, but they understand the importance of keeping a promise, of keeping a vow. And yet when it comes to our faith, we are quick to be distracted. One of, my uh, one of my favorite hymns to sing is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing because the last verse 
reminds me of the faithlessness of my own heart, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I hope that I am never so naive to think that my heart would not be tempted by distraction, that that vulnerability and that weakness reminds me how desperately I need the gospel in my own heart. And your heart is quick to search for anything to find hope in. But the good news is that the faithfulness of the Christian does not rest in your own ability, but in Christ himself. Going back to the book of John in chapter 10, Jesus has just delivered his good shepherd discourse. And he is describing the faithfulness of himself and the Lord to God's people. And in John 10, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. For you, Christian, your faith is not dependent on your own ability or your own effort. Your faith is, a, is fully dependent in Christ. You don't have to make the promise, cross my heart, hope to die. Because your faith is fulfilled by the one who died on the cross. Jesus died to fulfill and to meet your faithfulness on your behalf. And I encourage you in your grief and your sorrow, be honest with your struggle. Be honest with the heartache. But find hope that your faith does not rest in your effort. Your faith does not rest in yourself, but in the God who called you to himself in the first place. Like the psalmist, your sorrow and your faithfulness lead you to pray, asking for God to intervene. And the psalmist begins his third point, the prayers for justice. And God's people have been attacked and slaughtered and taken captive. And they're praying, Lord, please step in. We need justice. And so picking up in verse 7, the psalmist writes, Remember, O Yahweh, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall, shall he be who takes your little ones, and dashes them against the rocks. And we read that in our current cultural context, and we are deeply offended. It attacks our cultural sensibilities. And it seems like no Christian should ever even think of praying like this, let alone sing it. This is a psalm. This is meant to a song to be sung by God's people. 
Imagine a congregation of people singing, blessed be he who takes the little ones and dashes them against the rocks. It offends us in our current cultural view. And so I invite you to join me as we unpack their situation. At this point in the the history of, of Israel, Israel and Judah are actually split into two divided kingdoms. And remember, uh, Israel and Judah is along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And Babylon, which is found in modern-day Iraq, is attacking from the northeast. And while they are under attack, the Edomites to the southeast of Israel and Judah are taking advantage of this attack and this distraction. And the, and the nation of Edom is actually attacking from the southeast. And so God's people are under attack from two separate angles. And as the kingdom is divided and not able to work together, the divided kingdoms fall. And we see in verse 7 that Edom was cheering for the fall of God's people. They were cheering for Jerusalem's destruction and God's people are saying, remember what they did to us, God. Step in and bring justice to this people who cheered for your people to fall. And in 8 and 9, the psalmist is saying, Lord, let Babylon receive what they did. When he's talking about taking the little ones and dashing them against the rocks, there's a sense that he's praying for an eye for an eye. Lord, do to them what they did to us. Because this is actually, and at the time it was an accepted practice in the ancient uh, Near East, that's the, the term for that geographical region, that when an enemy would come into a land attempting to conquer it, that they would they would slaughter the the pregnant women and they would take small children and destroy them. And that was a form of, of overpowering an enemy nation. One, because it would shatter hope and confidence in the warriors themselves as they saw their people and their families being destroyed. But it also reduces the chances of resistance in the future, that these children would not grow up to fight against the nation that has taken them over. And it it became an endless cycle of enemies invading lands and destroying one another's families. Theologian James Adams refers to this as the boomerang effect of evil. That as they go in in conquest and are destroying and slaughtering innocent life, that this evil would be repaid back unto them. And so the psalmist is saying, Lord, bring justice and pay them back for what they have done to us. And the important point here is to note that the psalmist is not praying for revenge. The psalmist is not saying, Lord, let me avenge my people. The psalmist is saying, Lord, remember us. Lord, you bring your justice. Because the psalmist 
And God's people themselves are dependent upon God to intervene and bring his justice to a broken cycle. And we are not that different today. We live in a fallen, broken world crying out for justice today. As of July 31st, this year alone, there have been 248 mass shootings in America. That's an average of 1.2 shootings a day. There have been 979 people injured and 246 people killed. Last weekend, we saw the mass shootings of El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, which killed 32 more people. We see friends and families racked with grief and sorrow and hopelessness. And instead of coming together and fighting to find a way to preserve life, as a nation, we spend more time arguing with one, another, with one another over the correct definition of what an assault rifle actually is or what we are or are not allowed to do with our laws and instead just buy bulletproof backpacks for our children and hope that that will stop the heartache. This very weekend... Jeffrey Epstein was under arrest in jail for molestation charges and sex trafficking and committed suicide while under custody. There are people scarred left in his wake that will never see justice fulfilled and met because he robbed them of that opportunity by taking his own life that justice will never be met on this side of glory. We live in a world that is desperate for justice and yet we're surrounded by destruction. We're surrounded by death and grief and heartache leaving our families with emotional scars and nightmares of this broken world that we live in, all coming from the destructive power of sin. And yet scripture does not allow us to give easy answers in the face of cruelty. In the face of heartache, we don't have nicely packaged answers to just give people and take away the heartache. We're called to live in a state of tension and trust in the justice of a God who hates sin so much that he sent his own son to pay the penalty for sin. Because scripture itself says that the penalty for sin itself is death. That if a person sins, that the condemnation is that they should die. And that is justice. The justice of an, an infinite sin against an infinite God. 
And yet your sin was so great that you could never meet the payment. You could never sacrifice enough. You could never be good enough. And so God intervened. Christ stepped in and took your place and met the penalty on your behalf. And in the process, gives you his own righteousness. And that somehow at the cross, justice and mercy and grace are intertwined. And there is still suffering. There is still heartache. There is still death. And sometimes you will see justice carried out here on earth. You will have the opportunity to see uh, the, the evil judged rightly and broken things set right. But sometimes you and I are like the saints in Revelation 6 crying out, how long before you judge and avenge our blood? But the hope for the believer is that this world is not all that there is, but that there will be an eternal judgment coming one day. That when Christ comes again, that he will judge the living and the dead. And there will be an eternal judgment. And so we pray. We pray for justice, for the broken things to be made right. And we pray for redemption, for those in sin to turn from their sin and to leave that broken state. We pray for justice for the oppressed, that those under persecution would be relieved and freed from that. And we pray that the, that those, that the sinful under the threat of judgment would turn and repent. I don't know what grief and heartache you might be struggling with right now or that you have struggled with, or even what's coming down the road for you. But in the face of grief and sorrow, I invite you to be open and honest with your struggle. Share your sorrow with the Lord and rest in the faithfulness of Christ, not in your own ability to be faithful to the Lord, but in the faithfulness of the God who holds you to himself. And trust that justice will come one day, if not here on earth, when Christ comes again in glory. And so I have to ask, in the face of sorrow, will you cling to your grief and stay under the weight of hopelessness? Or will you trust in the faithfulness and justice of God, the God who sent his own son to meet justice on your behalf? Let us pray. Gracious God, I thank you. We thank you. Because you are a God of justice that when you see the broken things, God, that you do not let them stay that way. 
God, that you intervene and you come into brokenness. You sent your own son to step into this broken world to bring hope and redemption. And so, God, for those of us here that are crushed under the weight of hopelessness, bring hope. Bring mercy and grace and justice. And for those people here who need you to intervene, God, we pray that you would step in. Use us as your hands and feet to bring a message of hope into a world crying out for justice. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. And we pray this in the precious and beautiful and holy name of Jesus. Amen.